Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Alright, so this is Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a soundtrack podcast where I talk to someone about a soundtrack that they have a connection to. Nicole Barlow is joining me, and today our guest is David Ballantyne from the Vinyl Score YouTube channel. You can check out his channel at youtube.com slash the vinyl score. We're going to talk about the 1995 Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction. But first, uh, David, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the vinyl score? Hey guys, uh, first off, thanks for having me too. I appreciate it. I'm excited to uh, excited to be here. So the vinyl score, I started the vinyl score during COVID. I'm an actor here regionally and you know, spend a lot of my time doing stuff like that usually. And kind of in the absence of all of, of the, some of those things that were shutting down, I was like, well, what am I going to do with my time and my energy and, uh, you know, without going too crazy. So uh, I decided to... I just turned the camera on on my iPhone and I just started to talk about uh, some of the soundtracks that I had bought recently. They were you know, soundtracks to movies that and television shows that I loved. And uh, it wasn't particularly good, but I posted it anyway. And I thought, well, I'm just going to keep doing it and just try and get better and make improvements as I go. And um, I so now it's kind of solidified into this show that reviews soundtracks to movies or television shows that I already love. And then I'm also kind of doing comparisons to different vinyl pressings and saying, you know, does, is the new color vinyl version, deluxe, gatefold, whatever, is that better than an original, you know, 1980s pressing? What are the pros and cons of, of all those kinds of things? Some of it's really celebratory. You know, I haven't really reviewed a show that I don't like or a movie that I don't like. Like usually I like this soundtrack or score and then it's also about the vinyl that's kind of accompanying it and talking about that well david your relentless positivity is about to come colliding with people that like to talk about how much they hate things so (laughs) don't feel weird but typically we talk about soundtracks that we like (laughs) there was good discourse it was good discourse i I checked into your high fidelity episode and there was a really good conversation around this the soundtrack being good but how that movie has aged or not. And uh, that was actually one of the favorite ones, one of the favorite ones of yours that I've had uh, because there was kind of this, is this guy fun? I don't like this guy. Uh, anyway, I, we don't want to go talk about high fidelity, but <laughs> I like that kind of spark. So bring it on. Well, thank you, David. This is like a crossover hit success today. And it's very, very cool to have you on the podcast. And I, I kind of want to start out by talking do we like Pulp Fiction, to your point? Is Pulp Fiction a favorite for you, David Ballantyne? Well, I think it's one of those movies, it's like a movie or a book. It kind of depends on when you saw it or read it. And like that can be a really important thing. Like I read Catcher in the Rye at the right age, so I love it. And I've never reread it. Maybe that's important. Um, <laughs> but for me, Pulp Fiction was definitely a movie that was one of the first movies uh, that had a lot of firsts for me, nonlinear storytelling, you know, lots of hip people, lots of hip music, at least to my ears. And, you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff happening. So I, I think for me, it still works. I think there's a couple moments that don't, but I rewatched it this year. I didn't rewatch it in preparation for this. Cause I felt like I had seen it and I thought, Oh yeah, this was really enjoyable. I don't think it's, Maybe my favorite from Tarantino overall. Um, and I think he's done wackier, dumber things since mm-hmm. then. But I think this really feels really 90s cool and still clicks on that level. Yeah, I think you've got to respect it. I think we're probably in a similar age cohort here without revealing anybody's true ages or doing a roundtable about that. Let's skip that part. But uh, yeah, it, it like came at this really crucial moment in time and it really felt fresh and new and innovative and, and like you said like hip and cool and it brought back this resurgence of I think a lot of uh, music that at the time hadn't really 
been celebrated enough. I mean, I think you can definitely credit Pulp Fiction with the resurgence in surf rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that no argument like Miserloo out the gate for this movie was a, a really big revelation for a lot of people. Like if you were in high school and you had never heard like 60s surf rock before or you hadn't been exposed to it on that level, like Miserloo hits. Like that's yeah. a heavy hitter to start your movie with. Yeah, it comes in really strong. And I, I think it's a great point about, you know, kind of discovering different genres from this film. And I, I swear that the mix, even in the movie of the, of the music, I think, I don't know if you get, you know, they let Tarantino like twiddle the knobs, but it seems like every time Miserloose starts the movie, it seems so loud. Like, <laughs> it's just, like, ah, it, it just coming in hot, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it really grabs you. And I think he does a good job of picking the right kinds of music from these different genres that really are different, engaging, they really grab you, right? Like Miserloo. You can pick some boring surf rock and maybe if you heard it, you go, oh, that's neat, you know, but it isn't necessarily Miserloo, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's anything but generic. And like you said, it sounds so tuned up and loud that it, it has a certain intensity that you can tell was really intentional. <laughs> like that's the thing that gets you invested in the film in this like wild, crazy, wacky, strange romp that I think at the time took everybody 10 watches to really understand the connective threads. <laughs> Cause it's kind of a new concept, right? Right. And I just want to make a quick connection between this soundtrack and high fidelity, which we brought up earlier uh the two movies share the same soundtrack supervisor kathy nelson kathy wherever you're at kathy kudos to cheers kath you did it girl did you guys i I think one of the reasons why this one is so popular is that i i think it was all a part of those cd programs and like some people are gonna listen to this and be like i don't know what you're talking about but there used to be way back in the way back times you could get, you could join a CD club and you could get five for a penny or a dollar or something. And I swear that Pulp Fiction was one of the ones that was like always advertised or mm-hmm. it would get sent to you if you didn't do anything. Yep. Because I just remember being like, everyone kind of had one. You're like, where'd you get that? You're like, I don't know. CD club. <laughs> right? It just showed up. It showed up like in a box of cereal. It was just there. Like, I don't even care if you were, if you were enrolled in whatever the BMG music program, which I remember too, David Valentine. I'm old enough to remember CDs. Uh, Yeah, like I just feel like it was so ubiquitous that we all kind of absorbed it, whether we wanted to or not, whether we had seen the movie or not. If you were younger and maybe it wasn't age appropriate for you, you had still heard the songs from this soundtrack. It was everywhere and it's hard to overstate that. (laughs) Yeah, I think think Jungle Boogie was like – you know, relicensed for commercials for the next three or four years. <laughs> and I hope those guys made so much money. Uh, I hope everybody on this soundtrack just made a ton of extra cash, like late period. Right. I actually did see cool and the gang a few months ago for the 4th of July. And before they come on stage, they have like this little animated video play of all the different soundtracks that they're on. And like people start cheering when Pulp Fiction and Jungle Boogie came up. No way. It is also yeah. my number one played uh, played song on Spotify this year because my daughter really likes it. On your wrapped? On your Spotify wrapped? Yeah, my number one song is Jungle Boogie. <laughs> is Jungle uh, Boogie? Wow. Wow. That's awesome. That's pristine vibes. If anyone's wondering, too, like uh, the power of that song, if you look up the trailer for Pulp Fiction, they use Jungle Boogie in it. And I'll tell you, you watch it and you're just like, whew, you just get hyped from the, from the way the music is used the way it's cut, the way, again, I'll say the volume, he's got the volume right at nine. And it's just screaming at you at all the right times. Yeah, Tarantino really is the ultimate hype man for his own shit. <laughs> yeah. He really knows how to cut together uh, yeah, a, tra- a trailer, like an, a little ephemeral piece that even if the movie ultimately is maybe not your jam or your favorite in his canon, like you're instantly in because he creates such atmosphere and he's such a smart curator of music. And I, fun fact, I work in advertising. So 
I also know how <laughs> these trends started and then like rapidly descended into, oh shit, everybody is using this sound. Yeah, and Tarantino, I think, was cognizant of like the energy of Miserloo and needed mm-hmm. something to kind of continue that ride. So I think the inclusion of Jungle Boogie is intentional. For sure. <laughs> it is like, it is like uh, you know, doing drugs in this movie you you need you need that thrill and he needed to keep that thrill going yeah you got to keep you got to keep the thrill ride high I, I think the the other moment that when i was doing research for this um that i read was super premeditated and preplanned by tarantino is that son of a preacher man moment where uma thurman's character is um you know doing a line inside and he's talking to her over that intercom and trying to like picture her and he's like, oh, yeah, I've known for years how that scene was going to go down and like the exact song it was going to be with that scene. And I think that's what you feel like when you watch it or when you listen to it divorced from the film. It, you, you really feel like that intention. That's interesting that, you know, you that you you read that about him being so purposeful because I, I you talk about him being a good hype man. And I think that really drills down on that again. He's thought about this stuff for so long. Or so thoroughly, right? He's vetted these ideas that he knows. He probably knew exactly how that how that trailer, how he wanted that to to play out, right? And how that how he wanted that to be delivered, right? Yeah, and and his gift, I think, of of, of creating these uh, op- opposite. Uh, what's this juxtaposition of sound? Because I think he does in Reservoir Dogs that people remember it a lot, mm-hmm. and they remember it with with the scene with stuck in the middle with you and that and the torture, right? Yeah. And, and there's this you know this jaunty light moment with this horrific other acti- action happening right next to it, and I think that you you kind of have a mix of that ha- that happens all throughout his career, but I think this record in particular has the most energy and the most, and I I would never admit. I known some people who've used drugs, and so I can only imagine that this was what it would be like in some ways. You know, when you listen to this record, right? It's like tell me your movie is about hitmen and drug users without telling me your movie mm-hmm. is about hitmen and drug users. Like the soundtrack really does um, speak to that content, right? Um, and uh, there's a lot of sadistic stuff. In Tarantino movies, it's, it's kind of what he's known for is this like cartoonish, like ultra violence. Uh, I think I think my other fun fact that Ryan and I both discovered about this is uh, that there's a particular song in this movie that that wasn't the first choice. Ryan, you want to you want to take this one? I just want to hear you talk about it. Yeah, so I came across this Rolling Stone article, kind of celebrating the soundtrack of Pulp Fiction. Rolling Stone is maybe not my go-to publication, but in this, but they did have access to Tarantino. And he said that for the song Comanche, it's a uh, surf rock song, it soundtracks a very graphic scene in the movie. And he said his first choice was the next Mike Sharona. And he says, quote, Mike Sharona has a really good sodomy beat to it, if you think about it. <laughs> Which I didn't want to. I've never thought about that, and I don't want to think about it again. But Tarantino did. Tarantino thought about that shit. Yeah, he he did. He he wrote that down. He thought he 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 sent he sent letters and requests saying, "Please, can I license this?" <laughs> oh man, hey, the knack, <laughs> dear the knack. And I think he said that they declined it because I think one of the band members had just become a born again Christian and yeah, didn't want to be any part of this. That's the funniest bit is that they were like, you want to do what? No, we're, we're super Christian now. We're not going to no. Honestly, they probably should have said yes and weathered whatever weird reaction that garnered because I mean, that song's super well known. And I think many artists could, could attribute some sort of bump in sales or notoriety <laughs> from him giving their music a, a, a shine or spotlight in, in in his in his movies. So I bet they would probably regret that now. I don't know that I do. I don't necessarily think I need that in that moment. <laughs> I, I think Comanche. I think that works pretty well for the frenetic wildness. I I think that works. Mike Sharona makes it a definitely a different scene, and I don't need a lot of alternate versions of that. 
Yeah, I, I believe he says in retrospect it would be too cutely comic. And for people listening, if you if you don't know the scene that we're talking about, I, first of all, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but second, I'm really, really sorry if you find out afterwards. The gimp's sleeping. <laughs> Bring out the gimp. All you need to know is, you know, it's got a good sodomy beat to it. Got a good sodomy beat. Yeah, that's a, that's enough of a clue for anybody, I think. I can't wait for Pitchfork <laughs> to use that in a review. It's got a real sodomy beat to it. <laughs> if they do, if they do, they owe this podcast. Patent pending or, cop, you know, copyright on that one. <laughs> I just yeah. want to be part of the cultural conversation of bringing that back. <laughs> Got to be responsible for some positive change in the world, right? Yeah, this is the first step. <laughs> yeah, Tarantino is, uh, he's kind of this mad genius that that you would really never, I think, want to hang out with. Or you're just going to end up doing a lot of cocaine with him. Uh, so I don't know if you guys recently saw this tweet that was circulating how, I guess, Fiona Apple was interviewed years ago about why she quit doing cocaine and her answer was i quit doing cocaine after being locked in a theater with quentin tarantino and david blaine who were doing so much cocaine <laughs> i thought it was tarantino and paul thomas anderson oh it is pt anderson you're right because they were dating at the time thank you other yeah, guy oh, you dated. sorry fiona if you're listening but i thought that was like the greatest story about <laughs> yeah i would probably quit cocaine too i can't even imagine what that would be like he's over there talking about sodomy beats Fiona Apple just wants to chill. She already has enough anxiety. (laughs) Right. We don't need to add. I think she's in a better place overall. I think so so too. But I was reading too that like that. So the CD, speaking of CDs, when it came out, I guess came out in like a, a, a double CD edition too. And the second disc that you got was Tarantino talks with an exclamation mark. And it's just him talking <laughs> about the soundtrack <laughs> for the whole disc. So it's like an early commentary track. Yeah. Like developing his own commentary system. Uh, I've never heard of that version. Uh, apparently it existed and it came out um, shortly after the the primary soundtrack came out because that's what a you know runaway success it was that people wanted more. But that is kind of the ultimate bait and switch. I'd be so pissed. <laughs> It's a what? Just Tarantino talking. You're like, oh, I thought it was the other songs that were in the movie that are not on the soundtrack. Right. Yeah, there is a handful that are missing. Right. But I, this is also the first soundtrack, too, that I I think. I think this is the first soundtrack I ever had that has dialogue woven into it, too. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that was such a unique thing. Now maybe there, there's there's definitely a few more, but I it feels very still unique to this record. And you know, he's got great dialogue to kind of pull out and capture in that way. Uh, but, you know, the same way that the movie starts with that great quote uh, from the holdup in the, in the diner, right into Miserable, right? You kind of get a replication of that experience. Yeah. It, it Again, I think that was super innovative for its time and started like a whole trend of that just, you know, being a thing to the point where it's practically like a soundtrack trope now. But it's kind of unbeatable in the sense that there's some really iconic pieces of dialogue in this movie. Like the whole Royale with cheese dialogue is on this soundtrack. Like it's, it's an amazing, amazingly written film from that perspective. It's still fun. Those parts of the movie I think are still fun and so watchable and so um, fun to listen to. Yeah. I think there were some comedy soundtracks that had some, you know, dialogue woven in, but this is the first time where like, it wasn't super annoying to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like very, very fluid and natural. It's not like forced or jammed in there. You want it there. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, it's not just what flows so naturally into the song. Because I think the other one that works really well is the intro to uh, the Twist Contest, right? That Chuck Berry song. And they kind of do their little intros on stage and then the music starts. And that just is like a perfect little... You know, that's the perfect little prelude uh, before that song kicks off. So it doesn't feel really uh, jarring. Right. I want to ask this question. Have you guys been to a wedding or multiple weddings where they play You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry? Anybody? <sighs> Just me. Am I that level of white person? 
I think you're on your own. Just me? I think you're on your own. Yeah. Uh, I recently went to, this is my sister-in-law's wedding, and it was a few weeks ago. Uh, and it was at the Madonna Inn. I don't know if any listeners are familiar with that, but it's this like really kooky, like kitschy sort of roadside motel place. It's all pink and mid-century. It's in San Jose. Um, and they have this like giant ballroom where they have this like, you know, probably like median age, like 85 plus like band that's playing, you know, for a bunch of ballroom dancers, like the Haunted Mansion, but a little bit more ripping. And they start playing their version of this song. And, you know, like older people are getting up to dance. This is the rehearsal dinner. And the next day we go to the wedding and the DJ plays this song too. And yeah, people still do <laughs> the Uma Thurman, like John Travolta moves with the like thing on your eye. and the thing. Yeah, you guys know. Yeah, I would say that this movie owes a little bit of an apology to people <laughs> for those dance moves having to be replicated. Because while I've never been to a wedding where they played You Can Never Can Tell, I've seen those dance moves, you know, hundreds of times, especially in, in those kinds of settings. Yeah, how like so many times, right? We've had to watch so many people dance badly <laughs> to that song. And I'm including myself in this conversation, so we're clear. I'm not free. <laughs> I'll assume I've done it, and I'll just own a portion of it. <laughs> right. I have done that dance, people. Ryan, we we really need you to admit that you've done it, too. I, I'm sure I've done the dance moves. I just don't know if it's been at a wedding. That's okay. That's good enough. I feel like we're balanced. Yeah. yeah I mean, if you've seen this movie, you've done the dance moves. You've definitely done the dance moves. It, I mean, even probably drunk, but you've done the dance moves. <laughs> right. The dialogue on this one too, I, uh, you know, I was still living at my parents' house when this came out, and I really wanted this record, and I had to really—I would say that the real challenge of the dialogue when I was younger is that I had to remember where it all was and which part it was, because if it was certain parts, there's just so much swearing and there's just like so much cursing, and I would just like have to run, run, run back to the CD player so I can like turn it down and like wait till it goes by. <laughs> incredible i think yeah, we all have at least one album where we had to do that yeah. right, right. oh no <laughs> footsteps so um shall we talk some urge overkill i've done a lot of research on them for some oh, reason man you are you were like the internet's number one urge overkill hater so yeah let's talk about some urge oh i am definitely well, that's fine not with me. this seems like their only bright moment to me i never cared or paid attention Beyond, I bet I, you know, I'm happy for them in some ways, but they don't, it doesn't impact my life. In yeah. fact, I might even go as far as to say, I'll just take Neil Diamond on this instead. Yeah, it's weird that this was like the hit from the soundtrack. Like they got a video for it. Very weird. But apparently the whole city of Chicago hates them. And it's not for doing this song. Explain. Well, yeah, why? If it's not for this. So I just, so I, you know, I follow some music writers and a lot of them are based in Chicago. And I remember one of them, uh, his name is Lior Galil and he works for the Chicago Reader. And I think he kicked off this fascination with the hatred of Urge Overkill by tweeting. Um, you can tell the divide between Gen X and millennials by whether they've ever considered Urge Overkill. <laughs> okay. So I was like, oh yeah, that band. And then, so I started like digging and there were these two women in the nineties who hated them so much. They created a zine called the stalker. They would show up to urge overkill concerts in suits. Cause that's what the band would wear. Just like in the music video. And they like one of them, like snuck in a bullhorn to just like scream how much she fucking hated them during the show. <laughs> like they trolled them pretty hard. And then I think, you know, 30 years after their debut, like someone tracked them down and was like, why'd you do all that? And they said, cause they're just assholes. <laughs> I, I just don't find them interesting enough to, to muster any hate for. I think I must be a millennial because people need to go back to ignoring urge overkill. Just I think they hard. have a, sorry, Nicole, I'm going to talk over you. Mm -hmm. I, I think they have a real kind of, um, they're an amalgamation of nineties, guitar sounds and then like 
a band that maybe got signed and then was trying to be force fed to the masses. And mm. it's like, you know what? We don't want this band, you know, and it just never worked. And, uh, and then I bet they got that hit and then, and then, you know, they're kind of around and people kind of have to see them. They're going to get better shows because they're on this Pulp Fiction soundtrack. So I don't know. It's one of those bands that I remember we, we would, we would always have their stuff used and it never sold. Yeah, so they had this kind of meta thing with them, like before, like meta was cool. So, you know, they were this indie band out of Chicago, but they tried to like do the whole outsized uh, rock persona sort of thing. So the lead singer, I think he goes by Nash Cato or the Cato Nash. I just found out this week that Nash is short for national. So he his rock okay. star name was National Cato. But I guess they had a falling out with Steve Albini, and I'm sure some people hated them for that. And Albini says the fallout is basically because they were forced on their indie label to put more money into marketing and stuff like that, which the label typically didn't do. And then they ended up leaving for the major label anyways. Well, I'll tell you, you don't want Albini on your bad side. I really don't. You want neutral or good? No bad side, Albini. Yeah, Yeah. that's not the move. And so I wanted to get confirmation on this urge overkill is our urge overkill are a bunch of assholes rumor so i talked to phil who does the music for the show and he's a chicago musician now and i was like what is the verdict on urge overkill and he says the only time they ever come up in conversation in the chicago scene is for someone to talk about how big of assholes they are Well, well, if anybody's listening from Chicago, I guess, you know, drop a note. Let us know how Urge Overkill harmed you. That's and if they're legacy. cool, let us know that they're cool. If you've but... been personally victimized by Urge Overkill, please contact Ryan Pack. But apparently this song is just a cover from some EP they did before they signed to a major label. And Tarantino right. found it and put it on the soundtrack. Right. That's the story is that he he discovered it. He played it for Uma Thurman and she was wild about it. And it and it went in this, you know, kind of fairly prominent scene. So that, that is definitely the song. And we talk about this. I feel like every podcast, if I had to pick one to go, it would definitely be this one. Hmm. That's a good question. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm there. But I don't begrudge you your choice. Thank uh, you. you know, I, I can understand that. There's two spots on the on the soundtrack that really slow down for me. Uh, one of them's Lonesome Town. And I mean, uh, this is kind of petty because they're really almost just tempo problems. Mm-hmm. Lonesome Town. And then there's a song by Maria McKee. Uh, something about a red dress. Uh, yeah, that, that one's not a fave of mine. She's got a great voice. Like when I let it go and I listen to it, her voice mm-hmm. is beautiful, but I barely remember what that's from. And both those moments are like these little lulls. And maybe I need that somehow when I'm listening to the record all the way through. But those are my two moments that I, I think I would let Maria McKee go if I had to pick one. That's fair. I, I think uh, it, If Love is a Red Dress by Maria McKee, it's definitely a down-tempo moment. It's definitely dated in a way that is not great does it didn't age well and i'm sure if we were listening to this on cd right now we'd skip it be a skip lots of bands around that period with with you know kind of that slow strumming and then um a a vocalist you tended to be female just belting how you know really showcasing her voice in a big ballad uh I'm trying not to pull in four non blondes and things like that, but you know, there's just these moments where they just really let it go. It's a perfect comparison. It, you are 100% spot on with that. Yeah, Nicole and I immediately were moment. like, yep, 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 yep. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. Four non blondes. Yep. That's the same belt. Yeah. It was a thing. I would also cut, um, I would also cut urge overkill, but not because of my urge overkill rant earlier, but because I feel like Phil Shane is my Neil Diamond impersonator of choice. Do you remember Phil Shane, Nicole? Who is Phil Shane? Remind me. Jog my memory. He was that Neil Diamond impersonator that would play in uh, Costa Mesa. I wish I knew what you're talking about right now. Was I too drunk in the bar? Was it at a bar? (laughs) So Nicole and I used to work together uh a while ago and i feel like a bunch of coworkers would 
march down to like this this restaurant bar and we'd watch this guy with he had a he had a uh he had a microphone and some sort of music system kind of like a karaoke machine and he would just do neil diamond covers and he was like known he was just known all over for doing these neil, neil I think diamond we should covers send Phil Shane a note, see if so he wants to, if i want to hear neil diamond i'm gonna go find that guy and not listen to urge overkill I support all the small market Neil Diamond impersonators out there, and, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I would like all of them to get their day day in the sun. I agree. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we just had like a flash mob of Neil Diamond impersonators singing "Sweet Caroline"? We could solve so many problems. Yeah, world peace is how we get it. <laughs> I'm going to make a really loud sound for a second. Hold on. Sorry. Oh, look at this. I have I have this with me. Those you can't see because you're listening to a podcast. But I have my my copy of, of the record on vinyl. And I when I was talking about hiding this from my parents too, is that I found this and I was like 15 or 16 and it was at a record store in Seattle, Washington. And I remember being like, oh, man. I have to get this, but I also need to like buy two other things. So it's like in a sandwich. So it's like, you know, in the stack it's because I, I knew that they knew and they did, they, you know, they would try and talk me out of it. So, so I remember I had to buy a couple other records to kind of smush this in between. So like when I went to the counter, there wasn't like a big interrogation uh, of what I was buying, but I remember finding this and I, I never saw it again on vinyl for years and years and years, it was super hard to find. Mm-hmm. Now it's around again, which is cool. If people mm-hmm. do want it on vinyl, you can find it pretty easily. Yeah, finding a, an OG copy of that is is still not the easiest thing to do. So that is very very cool. That's do you scarce. remember? Do you remember what um, what records you had on the outside? Was it like Backstreet Boys? Like what were you trying to convince your parents you were into? Trying to think, it would have probably have been some sort of safety grunge kind of thing. <laughs> safety you know, grunge. Yeah, like, you know, some, some sort of, it's a little bit pre that. It was probably going to have to be a Pearl Jam record. Uh, I, you know, something kind of like that. I liked a lot of local bands from Seattle and Portland and my, my, and that my brother got me into. And my parents wanted to support that. They're like, well, his older brother, it's taking an interest in the boy, so if he wants to buy one, you know, a band of one of those, they would kind of let that go uh, because it was, you know, because my brother kind of said, you know, was was giving the clearance, you know. So I'm sure it was something like that. So Some great, screaming, screaming trees. <laughs> exactly, you've got it. You've got it. <laughs> That's great. Safety grunge. I like that. Got to conceal it with some safety grunge. Yeah. Some, you know, something soft and easy, something nice, you know, nothing, nothing too, too wild. Yeah. I, I was also in high school when this came out and I think I was probably faking it. Like I was listening to my parents, Garth Brooks CDs or something. And before my mom would go through all my actual CDs. Cause that happened. Hmm. <laughs> Let's check those lyric booklets. Let's make sure there's nothing bad in here. Exactly. That parental advisory sticker which i mean now no one no one cares now thanks tipper gore i was just gonna say thanks tipper gore you did that yeah no one seems to care now that i think we're sort of um past that moment for the most part yeah there's not like a year-end review of those spotify wrap-ups right when you can say (laughs) this is a lot of explicit stuff here johnny you know (laughs) go through it like no 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 yeah you're really gonna want to reevaluate your choices not prudent yeah, like when you look it up on Spotify, it's just like a small little E next to it. Like no one's going to catch that. <laughs> no way. Well, see, people don't understand some of the challenges of these pre-internet days, you know? I think that's one of the things I – and I know I talk about this in my, my review, but one of the things it was so much harder to like learn about music. You'd have to like – 
you need to be a millionaire back then and have a ton of cash to be like, I'm going to buy this record. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy, you know, to go in and try this kind of stuff. You couldn't just go on YouTube and sample something or whatever. So that's why I thought this record was so important to me growing up is that it's the first time I heard Al Green. It's mm-hmm. the first time I heard uh, Chuck Berry. It's the first, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the first times of a lot of these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, my parents didn't have those kinds of records in the house either. They were, you know, really, really boring records. And so, like, you know, getting to hear that kind of stuff was a really uh, big uh, treat and a big gateway. I call it a gateway drug in my in my review because I really think it is. You, you get to sample all these different kinds of music. Uh, and this one in particular, for me, growing up was so away from everything else. It's like, you know, my brother kind of taught me some rock and roll stuff. You know, my parents liked folk, John Denvery kind of stuff. And then this was just a whole different chapter that I was like, I don't know about any of this. And it was just really exciting because of that. Absolutely. And not to get too, like, back in our day, like, crotchety on it. But if you didn't have a cool older brother or somebody's cool older brother in your circle that was handing down the things that, you know, felt like, the knowledge from some greater source. If you didn't have somebody in your group that was into something like the replacements, your parents certainly weren't going to expose you to that. Your parents weren't going to expose you to punk and post-punk and old soul records, you know, for, for the most part. So I think that's why soundtracks are so beautiful and why this one really is kind of that that sweet spot, that like golden age of curating songs that you couldn't find any other way. That we were still kind of like in that even pre, um, you know, illegal downloads, illegal like Pirate Bay, like LimeWire era of trying to like desperately get shit. Like, oh, I hope it all gets here. Okay. On my computer. You couldn't even really do that. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's very hard to overstate, I think, how important soundtracks like this were for people that were just trying to discover things and, and have their mind blown. Yeah, it's a real mixtape vibe, right? This is like the yeah. end. This is like the last crowning king of the mixtape before you can really kind of just, like you're saying, go online, download stuff, you know, really try and get out there. And I, I don't mean it to sound like like an old man too much. Most mm-hmm. of it is just because I'm jealous that, you know, that if, if a kid today wanted to go, hey, what the hell's the Rolling Stones? Well, they can just go find out. And I think that's right. awesome. But I mean – that quest at 13 in 1993 mm-hmm. or four, mm-hmm. that's a hard, that's a hard task to go figure out how to listen to some of that stuff. It is. It's a mountain to climb. And I think that's why it's, you know, all the sweeter when you actually get to something that just absolutely breaks your world apart. And then I think that's kind of, you know, I, I collect records just like David does. And that's kind of what started it for me is this idea that, there was this whole world of music out there that I could access if I just picked in enough garages and looked in mm-hmm. enough attics and found enough people that, you know, wanted to give away stuff that they felt like was trash. And to me was just the ultimate treasure. Um, so that's definitely why I think Tarantino's method of making soundtracks feels so kindred to the stuff that I love. Cause I think that's how he kind of views the world too, is he's out there just scrapping and picking and trying to find that perfect sound for that moment that he wants to create. There's yeah, something one, very cool about that. One of his finest traits is trying to be the kind of unsung archivist, right? It's to say, here's, here's all this beautiful art that happened, but you know, it's kind of forgotten the time. I'm going to keep throwing it back out. And he does that with movies. You know, that's kind of why he brings up pulp directors and pulp, you know, uh, uh, you know, unsung composers and whatever. He tries to kind of push them out. And I think that's one of the best things about his popularity and the way he's used his popularity is to say, look at all these people out there, you know, who did cool stuff that we've forgotten the time. I'm just going to keep kind of pushing it out. Totally. He elevates these little forgotten bits of pop culture to being whole new phenomenons, which, you know, I know for people that are like purists or super music geeks or super movie geeks, it's really easy to say like, oh, he's just copying or, you know, he's just, you know, bringing something that was already done in a different movie. But I think he does it in a way that's remixed where it feels really his own. I don't even know if we need to make that argument anymore because obviously like he's for the ages. But his soundtracks are are really 
I'm surprised we haven't done more of them on this on this podcast. And we would if Ryan could handle more violence and wasn't such a baby. Wow. <laughs> I was about to compliment him about how he helped bring Park Chan Wook's, you know, old boy to the States. <laughs> I mean, I love that that's something nice that you can say. But I have asked Ryan to do Kill Bill so many times. It's like, I can't handle it. Uh, well, and now it's funny because, like, rewatching this, I, I, you know, compared to Kill Bill and stuff, this is like toned down uh, drama uh, compared to the wacky, high, you know, violent hijinks of some of his later stuff. And, and that's why he kind of, that's where he always kind of gets me. The last uh, bastions of realism, you know, are, are fading away after Jackie Brown, right? Mm-hmm. And then it, it, he kind of amps up this this more cartoony element to him, uh, which you know, uh, bless him. That's what he wants to do with his with his with filmmaking, you know, time and talent. You know, I don't begrudge him, but the things that work better for me are these ones that feel a little bit more grounded and and aren't quite as stylized uh, because his his later stuff get, gets real wacky for me. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I, I am a huge fan of the two Kill Bill movies and their associated songs. Um, so that probably is my favorite Tarantino. But I, I get that this is very much like gritty and real and maybe feels a little bit um, more true somehow and less kind of silly. I find the violence in Kill Bill to be kind of like, oh, my God, it's so over the top that it's silly. Ryan is like genuinely disturbed by it. <laughs> But you're not genuinely disturbed by <laughs> Pulp Fiction. Like, you can watch this film and be cool. Yeah. yeah. I think you could make it. But And again, it's it's tough to compare. I'm not trying to be unfair in comparison because Kill Bill is really much more purposely comic and, per, you know, purposely, you know, flashy in that way. And then, of course, that makes more sense to that tied to that story. So, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to do apples and oranges, but I, I think when he's got his – when I feel like his feet are kind of on – both on the ground a little bit more. I think his stuff tends to work for me a little bit more. Uh, everybody has their pain points, I suppose. I mean, in Pulp Fiction, like somebody's head gets blown off in the back of a car. <laughs> like, I guess that's true. With brain material. But you're okay with that. That part's okay. <laughs> I was really kind of dampling. It's not that much that happens. Uh, I was really trying. I was just thinking about the syringe in the, in the heart. Yeah. I, guess I mean, that, that was intense. That's intense, but it's not necessarily – violent except for the moment right but i guess the head that one's pretty violent uh i'm trying to think what other big moments there's lots of guns there's lots of shooting yeah i think violence i can handle violence i think it's uh a lot of blood that i can't handle gotcha Mm. i'm certainly not trying to advocate people are gonna walk away from this podcast being like that guy really wants ryan to get into violence (laughs) but you know I was just trying to rehash, do a retrospect in my head of the violence in Pulp Fiction. I actually want people to know that I'm trying to get Ryan into more violence that he'll do a Kill Bill podcast with me. I never said I wouldn't. There you go. Schedule it. Schedule it. This is just you bullying me on air. I am asking you once again to do the Kill Bill podcast with me. We could do Kill Bill. I never said we couldn't. It's okay. That's a whole. That's a whole other podcast. We'll bring it back to Pulp Fiction. Well, I was going to say one of my favorite moments of violence in this movie uh, and humor that we kind of talked about earlier, right? With the music and and, and kind of how, how those two things work is that little country song, "Flowers on the Wall," mm. that Bruce Willis, after he thinks he's done it, he gets in his car and like. He kicks on the car and flowers on the wall starts playing. I love the way he's working that scene because it also, you know, that feeling when you get in the car and you like a song you really like comes on. He's just perfectly in that moment, like, oh, like, fuck yes, flowers on the walls on, you know, and he goes. And then Marcellus Wallace crosses right in front of his car. And there's just this great moment where he realizes that they realize about each other and the song's still going. And then right when he hits him, the song cuts. I just love the way that works. I love the way that moment happens in connection to that song. That's a really good call out. And I think another thing Tarantino is so masterful at is making music feel uh, ambient. It's something that they're listening to on the radio or that they're, you know, feeling in that moment. And I don't know, there's something, there's a very like kind of warm and organic quality to how he 
puts music in his films, which is always nice. It's it's never just there. It's always like incredibly essential. It's not like, you know, this overlaid top 40 track. And we've talked about a lot of soundtracks too that have like these moments where it's just screaming at you like, we are now in the 80s. You'll be hearing Kaja Gugu or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's never like that. It's always like feels intimate, personal, real, um, and, and something that like only Tarantino could kind of pull off. We're in this weird kind of renaissance of some of that right now too. Cause I think there's like, and some of it's, I'm going to kind of get into Marvel territory too. Like some of it's guardians of the galaxy. You know, they, they, you know, James Gunn incorporated a lot of that seventies, eighties stuff with the mixtapes, which in that world works pretty well. But then it seems like a bunch of people who are like making movies were like, Oh, you guys hear about this? We should be jamming our so- we should be jamming our movies full of pop songs. And so, like, I remember I don't remember which one I watched. I think it might have been the first Suicide Squad, and mm-hmm. it's just like every thirty seconds is a different pop song and or a rock song. And there, and I was just like, this doesn't make sense. This isn't working. This isn't part of the you know, like you were saying, it's not connected to a moment. It's not purposefully in the background i just it's not part of a mixtape of star lord's mom you know it was just like disconnected i feel like we're kind of in this weird moment where it's happening a lot and there's a couple of examples of it working pretty well and then there's like a bunch of examples of it where it's overused and um just almost killing me inside yeah it's so obnoxious that trend it is is overkill it is is urge overkill my friends it's bad it it really is because it it beats you over the head with like um just really expensive almost like we're just flashing this at you to prove that we could pay for i don't know blondie or whatever it happens to be in that particular moment and it, it just gets annoying and it doesn't feel um yeah curated by a real person it feels put together by ai or something cheap nostalgia right it's like hey remember this remember Mm -hmm. this remember Mm -hmm. this (laughs) no more blows to the body i can't handle it right yeah it's sensory sensory overload it's it's not it's not a good thing that trend is is, needs to go that was my big issue with captain marvel Yes. It was just like, hey, did you for- <laughs> let me remind you again, we're in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And again, as somebody that works with music licensing a lot, this stuff costs so much money. So it's it's really just all it can see is like dollar signs. And yeah, it just it feels um, it feels almost cynical in a way. Like we're just going to see how much money we can throw at these like hugely popular songs that everybody's heard one billion times before on the radio. Well, and there's a couple of examples too, even recently, of some trailers. And I'm going to name one where it works really well, and that's if you watch the new Matrix trailer, uh, they use uh, White Rabbit, okay? Mm-hmm. And that you know that's a big part of the first movie. Follow the rabbit, you know, uh, it, it it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then there's like this new Batman movie, and then there's something else. But the Batman has like this kind of slowed down Nirvana, something in the way. And it's like, it's, mm. I was like, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's just all it's a Warner movies. Brothers problem for sure. It yeah. is a Warner We're, Brothers problem. Justice League, they did this weird Beatles come together thing. And I was just like, oh my gosh. This is like, it's too cringy. It just doesn't, I don't know. But yeah, I bet they're throwing money at it. And I bet it's paying off somehow on some bottom line, but I don't want it. It's like the Schumacher Batmans. It's like, oh, we've got you two, and we've got the Goo Goo Dolls, and we have Sunny Day Real Estate for some reason. Yeah, you know, Goo Goo Dolls is really missing from this Pulp Fiction soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, you know what I think about when I think of the Pulp Fiction soundtrack is I could really use more Goo Goo Dolls. Did you guys see this movie in the theaters? Is I that- did not. I was I too young. I was too young and, and wouldn't have been let in unless I snuck in. So I definitely saw it after the fact and was aware of the music before I was aware of the movie. Yeah. I would agree with that for myself too. I feel like it, I, I didn't see the movie. I feel like I saw Reservoir Dogs somehow first. Like we were like, I rented it or something, you know, but yeah, it was a while before I saw this. Yeah. I feel like Pulp Fiction was a popular like birthday party movie after the parents go to sleep. A hundred percent. I'm almost yeah. positive that I watched it at a friend's house with more lax rules than my parents had. And we all had that friend. We all had that friend. Thank goodness for those friends. Is, 
were none of us were that person with the with 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 the chill house. Ooh, I did not have the chill house. Did you guys have the chill house? You were sneaking records into other yeah. records. No, you no, 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 didn't mine. have the chill house. But I definitely watched movies after people went to sleep. I mean, that was definitely part of my my mo. If I needed to see something, it's like, well, I've got this movie, and then later I've got this movie with violence. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But no, this is definitely not a theater watch. I was just a bit a bit too young for that, which is a rare thing to say these days. But I was definitely too young at that time. <laughs> Because it was rated solid R. This is a solid R movie. It's a hard R. Hard R. Yeah. What do you guys think the last soundtrack like this was that had an impact? I was thinking about this. You know, like do 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 are are people who are younger like are they finding a soundtrack that would they would feel like hits their generation? I was thinking this isn't one for me, but. Some people really liked the last one I could think of was Garden State. Like that was a moment, right? Where where you know all that indie pop just went pow. But like, does that happen now? And I'm just don't know it because I'm old or or what? A lot to unpack there with what you just said, because we've had a lot of conversations about Garden State. Stay tuned for an an upcoming hate watch of Garden State. Well, yeah, because Brandis has never seen Garden State, so we're curious to see how it hits her. And I feel like you guys haven't done that episode yet. We're about to do it. um, But the thing about Garden State is that, you know, if you if again, if you are of a certain age cohort, you've seen Garden State and you you saw like the trends that it spawned, right? Just like this spawned a bunch of trends. I think Garden State did that too. You could argue whether that was a good or bad thing, <laughs> but it definitely, you know, skewed soundtracks in a particular direction. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, important in that way. Well, I yeah, think you another- also have to couple it with the OC TV show. Oh. I think those two things in tandem. True. Yeah. Big time. I agree. That kind of that one two punch of the shins and then death cab right behind it. Bam. <laughs> yeah, so so my question is then, what is that next one? I mean, was there what was there what was the one after that? Or can that happen anymore in the same way? Like the way we digest music now, is that never really gonna happen again? Because I worked at the record store when Garden State came out and we sold a ton of it. I and then know. We sold a ton of the shins and all that, all that kind of came out of that. But like now, would that happen again? Like, like could something like this drop or, or you know, that would make such a big impact? I don't know that that could happen anymore. Well, I think Guardians and Black Panther have gotten studios interested in trying to do it again. I don't know if I would say either of those have that same sort of impact. I know Guardians sold a ton. Yeah, that's true. And Black Panther is just like a really fun, like Kendrick Lamar project. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as much as the two things that you just mentioned, though, are like big budget studio films. And so I think maybe part of what's lacking is there isn't that, um, you know, sort of independent backing or vision to the way soundtracks are put together anymore. It's it's just a little bit more engineered than that. Um, And that's kind of frustrating so I think that combined with just the sheer access that you have to everything now, as opposed to then, it, soundtracks are always going to be a, a little bit of a different experience going forward. But you know, it doesn't mean that 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 director, that music supervisor, can't come along and make something that is really magic. Um, I think for some people, Guardians hits that way. I, it doesn't for me, but I think it, it might for some people. If you're younger. Maybe you've, you know, never heard some of those songs before. Yeah, Maybe you've yeah. never heard, um, I don't know, Air Supply or whatever is on. That so I, I have two theories now, after just like talking this through with you guys, because I was just thinking about Guardians in this context. I was like, you know, that might be the first time some people have heard rumors. Right. Uh, that Fleetwood Mac song that's used in the second one in a very emotional yeah. way. Like, like it has an impact. And then, and then that took me to the next time that Fleetwood Mac got a big – uh, uptick and then it was TikTok. Yeah. And then that guy like drink cranberry juice or something. And then like yeah. all of a sudden like Fleetwood Mac was like rising on the charts again. So maybe that's where it is. It's no longer in these kinds of moments as much as these small viral bites. 
maybe that's the first time that you've heard the Bee Gees through, you know, some like TikTok ephemeral, like weird trending thing, but you're still going to like pull up those sweater threads. And if you're a kid, you're going to figure out like what you like and what you want to get more invested in. So that the, yeah, the way that it's conveyed might be a little bit different now, but I think there's still, I think there's still room for people to kill it within the context of a soundtrack. I think maybe it's just gotten, I think maybe there are just less opportunities right now. Yeah. Maybe both are, both are possible. Cause I think one of the things when I worked at a record store, one of my commitments is like, I never want to be like a gatekeeping dick, you Mm -hmm. know, where somebody's like, Hey, who's the velvet underground? I don't want to be like, Hey kid, you know, I don't want to come down on anybody who's discovering. Right. So I have to kind of check myself sometimes in those moments. Cause like, you know, you see things like that Fleetwood Mac song take off with the cranberry juice guy. And I'm like, you know, for my first reaction I was like, what's the big, what's the big deal? And I'm like, well, I, then my nephew rolls up. He's like, dude, have you heard this? And I'm like, <laughs> okay. All right. So now he knows, now he knows rumors. Like, okay, what, what's the big deal with that? You know, in some ways, I, you know, I, so I'm trying to, I'm always trying to check myself a little bit, but it would be cool to see some sort of smaller movie drop a compilation connected to it that has the same ripple effect that, that for good or bad, it's like an A-bomb, right? You can mm-hmm. use it for, for good or bad here, people, and it's going to have a big effect no matter what. <laughs> Is Wes Anderson too niche for The Life Aquatic to be kind of in that category? I think so. He'd have to have a mega hit, you know, because I love mm-hmm. his comps too, you know, especially Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore, I think are super strong. I think Life Aquatic's cool, but it's different. It has that half and half feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of his other ones, he, he kind of goes away from that format a little bit. But I think he'd have to have a hit to have the same level of impact that I guess I'm trying to think of, but he's a good candidate and very capable of it. Yeah. And I think again, even Wes Anderson and Tarantino have maybe kind of gone away that uh, gone away from this idea of um, curating songs, you know, maybe because they're starting to feel like they've stripped mind everything that is a little bit more underground or unheard because of the way people access and share music now. So it's more about scores and it's more about, um, you know, creating atmosphere in, in different ways, different kind of sonic tricks and not so much like um, I'm going to find, you know, that like obscure song from the 60s. Because now with, you know, things like Sample Delia and, and Plunder Phonics, like people have already brought so much of that back. Um, it's just kind of hard to find new things these days. Yeah. There was an interview on YouTube uh, three of the three of the Tarantino soundtracks got reissued on vinyl. Death Proof, Jackie Brown. I won't come up with a third one, but there was a there was three. So he and then his music supervisor did this little interview on YouTube. And it's a neat little watch. It's like 18 minutes long. It's not long. <clears throat> but they talk about the process now, and it's so microscoped because they were working on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They're trying to license this stuff. And if they go to somebody and they find out it's Tarantino, the price has changed. Right. And, and, and people's anticipation, like they're like, oh, oh, you want mine? Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me add a zero. You know, and they're like moving the decibel. And like, you know, they make this thing. Plus, then sometimes he doesn't. And, and he's, had to work, he's had to work really hard to get a hold of some people because they're hard to find to say, hey, I want to license this. And then, and then in the end, he's like, actually, it didn't work. <laughs> That's such a great point, too, is like that the game is probably just entirely changed for him and for the industry. And at the time of Pulp Fiction, you know, a lot of these things kind of feel more like happy accidents. It's it's fate. It's some kind of kismet that these things are on the soundtrack and that these artists agreed to it without really knowing his style and without really him being this, you know, established like Tarantino. That wasn't a thing. Right. So they, they took a chance. And and there's a lot of like dice rolling that I think happens on some of the older soundtracks for both Wes Anderson and Tarantino that isn't happening now. So that makes complete sense. Yeah, I think the industry has changed a lot since, you know, that big major label crash in the late 90s where, you know, now everything is like touring and, you know, it's all about these 360 deals with artists now. And I don't want to get like super like music industry, you know, deep weeds, but it just seems like I think... In the 90s, it was just like, hey, soundtracks are a great way to get our music out. 
it's a great way to kind of find another wave of popularity, hopefully. And I think now it's just like, show me the money. Like, I don't care what cultural impact this might have for me. Yeah. Like, well, this the, is how I make money. The finance, well, the financial, you're, you're absolutely right. When you talk about the shifting landscape of, the, uh, uh, of, of how artists make money. Cause you know, the, the end of the nineties into the two thousands, you, you completely see it shift away from, from, you know, record deals for actual physical media. And then licensing becomes one of the ways that an artist can actually make money. And, um, you know, so yeah, you do see that, that focus totally shifts for so many artists. Cause now it's just like a, well, this is a real viable way to continue to make money off of my music or make money the, for, for the first time or whatever the situation is. Right. Yeah, well, and maybe this is a too much of an. Now we're like, you know, trudging down this. Let's talk about the state of the music industry and, and how these artists. <laughs> these artists so are the conversation that we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> it's very well, mature. I, I think in text, I'm a big context person, and I think context is really important. You know, because you know, if somebody's like listening to this now, going, "Why are these guys? Who gives a shit?" You know, it's like, well, you have to know in the moment. It was really like. To be able to find stuff was just different. I, I don't know. It was just different. So that's also why it maybe feels like it was such a bigger deal for people from a, of a certain age. You know, I don't know. <laughs> no, but I, I do think that I think that the the sentiment, though, of, of some kid coming into whatever, a, a music shop or coming to their brother or their friend and saying like, oh, man, did you hear this song in this movie? The way that I think we all probably did when we heard certain songs off this soundtrack, off the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, like that's that's a little little slice of magic that I think is still possible. It's still possible to find things that you haven't heard before, and then kind of, you know, inspire this whole lifelong love of a, of a particular artist or band or sound, and and that's great. Now now I'm schmaltzy, it makes me schmaltzy. We're getting wispy over here, you know, <laughs> uh, thinking about thinking about future generations being inspired by surf rock. Oh, the kids! I just hope they pick up a guitar. I just hope they don't listen to that nasty My Sharona. <laughs> that song is forever changed. I know what that beat means, young man. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> Too true. That's going to be the new, like, oh, I, you know, if you play the song backwards, it's satanic or whatever. It's going to be like, oh, that beat. I know why you're using that beat in that song. I probably will, next time I'm somewhere public where that song comes on, have to drop this factoid and be like, you guys, guess, you know what, guys? Did you know that... There's a little party. I encourage you to. <laughs> That's your conversation starter for parties, everybody. I hope it's not like Christmas. Yeah, here's what you do your next party. You put on my Sharona, I'll drop slip, that knowledge. Slip it into the playlist, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, here's a good song. Hey, did you know? <laughs> You're welcome, <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Well, David, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. This was super fun. I I, I appreciate it. Nicole, do you have any last words? Uh, it's so grim. Do you have any final words, Nicole, about the death of soundtracks? Uh, no, just that it's it's been wonderful to have you, David. It's been a super fun conversation. We could probably keep doing this for two more hours, but I don't know if that'd be a listenable podcast. Yeah, we're stretching the limits. I'll say I I think we ended pretty positively. I feel hopeful about future generations and their, uh, you know, their opportunities to discover new music. Yes. David Ballantyne for president. God, no, please. I don't want to. God bless America. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, David, where can people find the vinyl score? Well, you can find me on YouTube. That's where most of my videos are. And I'm also on Instagram. And I do a lot. I do a fair amount of posting there. And then I'm also screwing around on Twitter. Uh, but that's it. That's the, Those are my places. So subscribe to David's YouTube channel. Uh, follow him on Instagram or Twitter. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well at SoundtrackCast on Instagram at Soundtrack underscore you're on Twitter. Please subscribe, rate, review. We'd appreciate it. And uh, thank you again, David, for being on the show. Thank you, guys. Real pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out, too.